And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, a proud part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. And this is the podcast in which I read and discuss comics starring Marvel Comics' blind lawyer by day, superhero by night, Daredevil. And we are quickly approaching the ending of the original Frank Miller run on the title, a sub-project of the show that I began way back in the show's very early stages in 2014. And there have been a few people just wanting to confirm exactly what the show's future holds. Is this a permanent return or is this a farewell tour? You kind of came out of nowhere and started releasing episodes without any announcement or fanfare. And for a long time, the answer was, I really don't know. I really literally just started recording episodes, decided to release them, and, well, one foot in front of the other, episode after episode came out. And the other question I've gotten is, what does this mean for the Dave Cave Batman podcast? Is that show really permanently gone? Well, let's get into that. Let's really discuss this and put it on the table because, well, listeners deserve to know and I've made a few decisions in that regard. First off, I have made the decision that the show is back permanently, or at least as permanent as things get. It will be back long term is a better way to put it. That comes with a little bit of a caveat though. Most weekly podcasts, what they end up doing is they just go year round and eventually that's going to run into a brick wall. You start missing a week here, a week there, maybe a few weeks, a month, I don't know. So what I did was take a step back and decide, well, where are my pain points? What causes these barriers that I run into from time to time? And how do I work around those? And the solution was actually pretty straightforward and pretty easy. You take a summer hiatus just like any network television show. If you look at The Flash or Arrow or even talk shows like Ellen DeGeneres or what have you, they normally do a set number of episodes over a specific period of time and then there's a hiatus in there. A, because for them, producing episodes is budgetary. There's a lot of money that goes into them. You're paying a cast and crew, you're paying to book guests, etc., etc. Well, reality is this show doesn't really deal with that, but what it does deal with is the fact that in the summer, recording time becomes very, very precious and very, very frustrating. For some reason, my neighborhood comes alive right around 8 o'clock a.m. every morning during summertime. Sometimes you get a quiet Sunday morning, but my home office actually faces into the street of the neighborhood, and it tends to pick up even cars driving by the place. So I normally have to pause recording as a car is warming up or if it's passing by, what have you. You factor in things like mowers. I have a neighbor across the street that mows their lawn at least minimum twice a week. That's not even factoring in the latter half of the month of June and the early part of the month of July in which fireworks go off. Yeah, they literally start around 9 a.m. It's not like it pops and cracks all day, but it's there and it's annoying and it picks up on the microphone, which makes it frustrating to actually record. Also, just to be honest with you, this home office is not very good on air circulation. It tends to be cooler in the winter than the rest of the house and much, much hotter than the rest of the house in summer. So once again, you have an environmental situation where it's hard to record. It's uncomfortable. Also factor in that in all the years I've been podcasting, what I've seen during the summer is a drop in downloads. Not night and day, but a pretty significant number of downloads drop during summer because people are out and about. They're on vacations. The kids are home from school. 
Some of the college-age listeners are out and about doing their thing, so a lot of ears aren't getting to the podcast during the summer. And normally during the fall and winter, you see an uptick in that because people are getting back to their regular routines. In the years past, my frustration level has risen in producing the podcast throughout the summer. And even though you don't see the fallout from that during the summer, you usually see it during the fall when the ramifications of all the frustrations and delays, etc. start hitting. So what will happen is the show will remain weekly up until May 26th, which is Memorial Day weekend. That's when I'm going to release episode number 125. So we'll be going weekly up to that point, and then it will be a break for about three months. The show will then resume and pick up its weekly status in September, specifically Labor Day weekend. Throughout the summer, I'll probably do maybe a handful of recordings when I get a chance and as things are quiet enough, but it will be far, far from a full-time gig the way it is now. And going on a summer hiatus will actually give me a little bit of a rest period where I can binge some TV shows, read some books, and get my head out of the normal headspace it's in when doing the show so I reapproach fresh when we come to the fall. So from Memorial Day weekend to Labor Day weekend, there will be a gap in episodes, and that's going to be perfectly normal. I want everybody to stay calm when it happens. It's perfectly planned at this point. The show isn't pod fading, it's just going on a regularly scheduled hiatus, which I plan to do every year going forward. And I know what you're thinking, and you're right. You're wondering if Dave came forth with a five-year plan once again, and I did not. My first approach to this was, I do not want to do a five-year plan. I have all the episodes planned up to episode number 125. I have no idea what I'm doing when I come back from a hiatus. I'm going to plan that out over the summer. And just to let you know, this will not in any way, shape, or form affect Listen to the Prophets. That show comes out every other Wednesday, do or die, hell or high water. Now, as far as the Dave Cave Batman podcast, I've been considering bringing it out of mothballs, putting it on its own feed, which will be separate from this one, and continuing the show. I don't know if there's that much interest in the show, but it would also go on hiatus around the same time if it does come back. I'm efforting that, and I know I said in the return episode I'm a Daredevil guy, never a Batman guy. Come on, that was a gag. Don't get me wrong, I lean more in Daredevil's camp than Batman's, but I was really enjoying doing the Dave Cave Batman podcast. It had a lot of good plans for spinoffs. And what really stymied that was, A, a bad recording of the Shaman episode, where I kept saying names wrong, I mean way wrong, but B, ultimately that this show felt so unfinished, that it felt like there was so much more to be done and people wanted this show to come back, and you're all very, very vocal about it. So hopefully over the next few weeks I'll have something on the Dave Cave Batman podcast if and when it will return. But for now, we know where we are. We know the show is going to be around for a while. There's going to be a summer hiatus. Let's jump into this week's episode. What we're bringing in from last week is the fact that Black Widow confronted the Hand, as in the group of ninjas, while trying to steal the corpse of Kirigi, the big bad assassin from earlier in the run. Black Widow was poisoned, and she's basically coming apart at a cellular level. Meanwhile, Matt Murdock slash Daredevil is suffering with his senses going completely amplified to the point where he cannot even stand it. So he was seeking out Stick just as Stick, his mentor, was seeking him out. As the Hand are beginning to make a very, very big move and Stick is leading a group of ninja against the Hand and they want to recruit Daredevil. When last issue ended, Kirigi was resurrected, Daredevil came into his house where Stick and the other ninjas were, and he collapsed. And Natasha had the bad news broken to her by Nick Fury and that's where we're picking up this week with Daredevil number 188. This is the November 1982 issue with a cover by Frank Miller. And what a cover this is. I absolutely adore this cover. We have Daredevil on his knees with his hands reaching in the air and behind him, coiled around him really, is the Black Widow. And the background is all black with these white spiderwebs cracking through it. 
And this is a technique that Miller would use later down the road in Sin City in which he would just roll the ink onto the page and then etch out his image and let the white of the page itself become the line work. And this makes this cover stand out big time. If you were looking at it on the spinner rack, this would be the definitive choice if you were choosing between the random comics there. Of side note, Daredevil is once again for the fourth cover in a row put in a position of submission, of being in trouble and unable to help himself. We had Daredevil reacting to a blue explosion a few issues ago. Daredevil following through the lights of the city, and then Daredevil in a blank cover, crouching and and cradling his head in pain. Here he is in the clutches of the Black Widow, which is kind of hot on one level, but she's a killer, she's a badass, so you don't necessarily want to be in her embrace if it means you're going to get killed, and this looks a little scary for Daredevil. Don't worry, that doesn't play out in the issue. Inside the issue, we have a story entitled The Widow's Bite, written by Frank Miller, who is listed in the book as writer-slash-storyteller. Klaus Jansen is credited with pencils, inks, and colors, and Joseph Rosen provided letters. Just like most of these issues, you can find it reprinted in Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 3 Trade Paperback, The Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Jansen Omnibus, and The Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Jansen Volume 3 Trade Paperback, as well as digitally on Comixology, Marvel Unlimited, The Usual Haunts. And the issue opens with Black Widow fighting her way out of the S.H.I.E.L.D. installation against all the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents they can throw at her and she still prevails. She makes a stop to see her old handler, Ivan, and lets him in on the news and decides she's going to find a way to get a cure. Ivan says, you can't do it alone, which Widow says, I don't intend to, and takes off into the night. She stops by Matt's brownstone, where she is unaware that Ninja are watching her, and she leaves, luckily meaning she doesn't have to die. And no, these ninja are not the hand, they're Stick's people, and Stick himself is looking over Matt, who's in a sensory deprivation tank, trying to work his way back through all of his senses and get back to normal. In her search for Matt, Black Widow comes across Heather Glenn's apartment, where Heather is distraught over everything being taken away from her at Matt's hands. Meanwhile, Kirigi is given the assignment to kill Stick, while Foggy and Becky try to figure out what's going on and where Matt is. And Black Widow's next stop is Wilson Fisk's high-rise office, where she fights through his goons, but ends up having to leave because she is literally dissolving right before their eyes. We come back to Matt in the sensory deprivation tank, where Stick is pushing him and telling him to get over his little whatever it is. Because the radiation from the isotope has already left his body, he should be fine. To which Matt responds that the radiation didn't leave his body the first time he was blinded, and Stick reveals that it wasn't the radiation that turned Matt into Daredevil. Stick doesn't really have a chance to elaborate as Kirigi enters into Matt's brownstone basement and begins to attack, and is fought off and killed by Stick and his fellow ninja in white. Matt gets out of the sensory deprivation tank and Stick says he's about to explain, but at that moment, Black Widow arrives and she is coming apart, literally dissolving into steam right before their eyes. And we end the issue with Matt's shocked reaction to one of the greatest super spies turning into wisps of smoke right before his eyes. And that is the end of the issue. Now, of course, I'm going to be talking quite a bit about this issue, but first I'm going to take a quick podcast promo break. So I'll be right back. You stay exactly where you are. Image Comics formed in 1992 by several creators unhappy with their current place in the industry. So they band together to make a new comics company for a new generation of readers. Creator-owned mutants, cops, black ops government agents, demon-possessed, and they are going to be the greatest comics ever. In April of 1992, the first issues hit the stands, and fandom resounded with cries of... Pouches? Why are there so many pouches? pouches? What? You don't like pouches? 
All the Pouches, an Image Comics podcast, is one fan's exploration of those early years of Image Comics. Youngblood, The Savage Dragon, Spawn, and more, with maybe even a few pouches along the way. So come give a listen at johnreadscomics.com. That's John with no H. Just you can spell it right. All right, we are back. Let's talk about Daredevil number 188. The title of the issue is The Widow's Bite, but I think a more appropriate title is Simple Spot Check, because what we see here is Miller literally checking in on each and every subplot and bringing it just an inch further to where we need to be. Now, one thing I'll say about the method of that is that it does bring Black Widow back into the equation in a natural way. But with a few exceptions, most of this issue is basically keeping a holding pattern. But getting down to the nitty-gritty here, we open with Black Widow fighting her way through some S.H.I.E.L.D. agents to get free. And the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents are saying, hey, we're here to help, we want to help you through what's happening to you, and Natasha points out, I'm not the quiet type. I'm going to find my own way out of this, and that's very, very strong for me, as far as what Natasha's character is. She could sit down as S.H.I.E.L.D. tries to experiment with random treatments and attempts at saving her, but she knows the only way she's going to save herself is to get boots on the ground and get moving. As I mentioned in the credits, Klaus Chanson is credited with Penciler, where Frank Miller is credited as writer and storyteller. To my assumption, and it's a pretty safe assumption, this is a issue that was laid out by Miller, but Klaus Chanson kind of took over more of the stronger penciling type. Really finishes and then brought in the inks. And of course the question is, does the issue suffer for it? Not a lot, but yeah, there's a little bit of suffering here. Some of his fight stances and some of his acrobatics don't look natural, especially in the way they don't track the way Miller's moments would, where you would see where Daredevil would do a somersault into a scene and get into position. Just some of the connective tissue is a little weak, and, you know, the colors aren't as strong as they could be. And this may come down to the fact that Miller was taking so much time with the experimental cover technique that he really didn't have time to do the interior art in full the way he normally would. But within Klaus Janssen's art, you see a lot more jagged lines and squares where Miller was still a little bit rounded at this time. There's a lot more line work on the page than needs to be, making all characters in this issue look much older than they are. But Natasha, the Black Widow, is the focal point of the issue. We are really going through a lot of the things that are going on. She's checking in and getting up to speed on some of these subplots, but she's very much the POV character of the issue. And we have Black Widow visiting her old handler slash partner Ivan who came in in the Amazing Adventures time frame. It's been revealed that Ivan was the one that found Natasha. It's very potential that she was a descendant of the Tsar Nicholas Romanov, as in Anastasia, that whole thing. But she was orphaned in a bombing and she was taken in by the agency and turned into a horrific super spy. I say horrific because of the way they twisted her mind and manipulated her. It's disgusting. And one day we're going to talk more about Natasha. She's going to get her own set of episodes at some point when I cover Deadly Origin. And because of events that happened after this particular issue that I don't want to get into detail yet, I can't look at Ivan the same way. The dude has a creepy factor. There's no denying it. He's got a weird infatuation with Natasha, who is his surrogate daughter. And that's just not right in any way, shape, or form, period. And the way that will manifest will keep you haunted down the road. I promise you that. But even Ivan is trying to tell Natasha, and I don't know why he thinks this would work, but he's trying to tell her to sit tight the way Colonel Fury is telling her to. That S.H.I.E.L.D. is a big agency with a lot of resources, and their investigation could yield results. And Natasha points out she just can't do that. That's not who she is. That's never been who she is. She is a person of action. No matter how much the Red Room, which produced her, and the Russian agency manipulated her, and S.H.I.E.L.D. even trying to keep secrets and deter her, she's still a person of action at her core. But from here, this is how Natasha enters our ongoing story. 
She checks for Matt at his brownstone, which would be a natural place to look at the place where the guy lives, right? And Stick's ninja cohorts are about to kill her as she's searching through there, and then she turns to leave, narrowly averting a fight. Now, I think Natasha could have held her own, but with being outnumbered and being ninjas, yeah, she was going to be up against a really, really stout enemy. And I think it's time to just talk about what's going on here with Stick. As the hand grew and grew, in terms of being a demonic-led ninja clan... Something came along to try to offset that, and that is where Stick is. That's the chase. That's this group right here. So Newton's laws of physics apply in social situations as well in some cases, this one being one. As the hand is escalating a little bit more towards their nefarious goals, and yes, there is a literal demon that leads them called the Beast. And at some point, I'm sure I'm going to cover Electra Assassin, we're going to get more into the demon. But for now, let's put the Beast to the side. The chase is the opposite reaction. As the clan grows and they start making big moves, the chaste will move in because their literal only mission is to combat the hand. And as we see the hand, they're always dressed in red. That's their, their whole shtick. They're red ninjas. While the chaste is dressed in white, except for stick, of course. And I think that objectifies ninjas. I think that's very, very insulting to ninjas. Not all ninjas wear white or red. A red ninja could be a good guy for all I know. That's judgmental and I think we need to stop this. Let's get ninja pride out there. Hashtag ninja pride. Not all ninjas are made the same. Come on, people. Let's get on board. But in all seriousness, we're going to be exploring these guys a little bit further. I just wanted to put on the table exactly what's happening. The hand is growing. The hand is moving. And the chase are moving in to stop the hand. And they're trying to get Daredevil on board, but he's out of whack at the moment. But instead of getting further and further into that, what we see is the Black Widow going to Nelson and Murdoch, learning that there's a schism going on between Foggy and Matt, even if Matt's not aware of it. She's also picking up that Matt is acting out of character. Black Widow also stops by Heather Glenn's apartment, another natural place to look for Matt. So, so far the logic is holding, but what we see is Heather falling apart. In Heather's drinking, she's a little bit drunk, and she's saying, you have a great way of courting a woman. Destroy my dead father's business, rip my life into eensy-weensy little pieces, and she collapses saying, you leave me nothing but you. Even Natasha watching this is kind of having the same reaction I've had for the last several issues, which is, damn, what is going on with this relationship? And if I were Natasha, I would think, maybe Matt's not in a place where he can really help me. This is not looking good for Matt's sanity and his stability, which in turn does not look good for my life expectancy to try to fight this thing. But hey, we got to check in on both Foggy and Becky as well as Heather Glenn. And we know where those subplots are, don't we? And just to follow the Widow's Path, and I'll come back to Daredevil's part of the issue in just a moment, she goes to visit Wilson Fisk. Her thought process is that Fisk would have tabs on Daredevil. Fisk's been a thorn in his side. Maybe there's been some movement or something along the way, but Fisk has no clue. And this is where Natasha starts literally dissolving and thinking that she needs Matt. Okay, let's be honest here. By what we've seen so far from Natasha's point of view, Matt is not a viable candidate. Let's go with the espionage agency, okay? They're big. They have resources. Matt doesn't. Matt's also in a very, very bad place, apparently, with his relationships, his friendships, it's falling apart around him, and yes, let's jump in and try to get help from the man who's not exactly stable. The Black Widow is smarter than this, and I would think she would put more trust in Nick Fury and Nick Fury's resolve than she would put into Matt Murdock's. And that's not a slam against Matt Murdock, but S.H.I.E.L.D. takes care of its own. They look at themselves as a brotherhood. Nick Fury himself is probably the king of that brotherhood, and feeling that way, he feels a kinship to his agents. They're not expendable, and especially not Natasha. Can we also add that Natasha is also part of the Avengers at this point? Before you start screaming into your MP3 player, yes, I know she's a reserve member, but she does have a relationship with the Avengers, which does include Iron Man. However, Tony Stark is in his alcoholic phase, so yeah, okay, let's let's go a different direction. Let's go back to S.H.I.E.L.D. This is an organization that has and operates helicarriers flying above the city camouflage, so the people below are completely unaware. Given that the Hand has been making a lot of big, bold moves lately, and that S.H.I.E.L.D. has been investigating them, at least in terms of Natasha tracking them from Brazil, 
there is a really, really solid chance that there's some intel in there. There's some research being done into the chemical composition of what the weapons are that the hand employs. That gives Natasha a much better chance, just logistically speaking, of living if she sticks with S.H.I.E.L.D. Matt has no helicarrier. Matt has no research on the hand except for first-hand fights, which still doesn't tell him much. And clearly, if Natasha's making a link between Matt Murdock and Daredevil and the hand, she's going to connect him through Elektra and the death of Elektra, and in turn, Elektra's previous relationship with Matt. Again, indicating that there's some intel, there's a database of information within S.H.I.E.L.D. on the hand, just supporting my theory that she should have stuck with S.H.I.E.L.D. instead of seeking out Daredevil. Now, it's not much of a spoiler to say this is going to work out in Black Widow's favor, but not in the favor of another individual. But Matt wouldn't be my number one choice in looking to reverse something that is chemically on par with a strong cellular cancer. I'm thinking about a medical professional. I'm thinking about a scientist. Let's look at Reed Richards. And let's not rule out some of the villains like Otto Octavius or even Dr. Doom, who could actually contribute to this medical chemical poison that acts so aggressively that they could research this and probably isolate it. Or hell, just give Dr. Strange a call to find a way to magically remove it. All of these are skills that Matt Murdock does not possess. Which makes it feel to me that Black Widow was shoehorned into this particular story because, well, Frank Miller wanted to write Black Widow. Do I fault Frank Miller for wanting to put Black Widow on the table? Absolutely not. If I was writing Daredevil, Black Widow would pop in at least once or twice. But I would find a better, more logical way to put her on the table than having her seek out Matt because of this situation. There are a lot of connections that do exist here, but none of them have been put on the table for Natasha to see unless you're counting S.H.I.E.L.D. intel. And if S.H.I.E.L.D. has that much intel to put all the pieces together and all the connections, then that means they have some sort of insight into what's killing Natasha. Logically speaking, they are the best hope for Natasha to live and to reverse this. And if S.H.I.E.L.D. can't do it directly, they can find a hero or villain who can. None of which are named Matt Murdock, who has no medical prowess, no mystical prowess, and no scientific background, and who's going through his own crap as we speak. And let's double back to the beginning of the issue to talk about Daredevil's part of the issue, which is to lay in a sensory deprivation tank for the entire issue and do pretty much nothing. Once again, we have an issue where there's a lot of spinning plates, a lot being done with a supporting character or guest character in Natasha's part, but not a lot being done with Daredevil. There are literally only three points I want to make here. One is... Not an observation by Stick, but an observation by myself. That is that Matt and Stick have conversations via telepathy. That's something Stick is able to do. And this is an ability that surprises Matt. He seems to be completely unaware that Stick was ever even capable of this. Which does beg the question of how much Matt really knew about Stick growing up. The man who trained him, the man who taught him how to hone his senses, another father figure of sorts, at least a strong uncle figure, and Matt had next to no clue on what the man was really up to. So what that reveals is that Matt put a lot of trust and effort into a relationship with a man who wasn't forthcoming, not just emotionally, but blatantly and intentionally deceived Matt by omission. Yes, it's still deception if you're omitting key pieces of information such as a big ninja war and that Matt's being trained for it. That speaks again to Matt's naivete that Stick would train him out of some sort of benevolence or some sort of empathy. And it's not something that's unrealistic that somebody would do so, but why would somebody with Stick's level of training and ability spend their time training Matt for no return at all? Does Matt think it was for the friendship? Is that what it is? And if we go back to Man Without Fear, which it goes back and forth on how much that is canon, but if we go back to that, Stick just kind of disappeared one day. He stopped coming, and that was after Matt had accidentally believed he had killed a prostitute by kicking her out the window. It turns out that wasn't the case, but Matt believed it, and Stick believed it. 
which means Stick abandoned Matt in a moment of complete failures, and a failure that really destroyed Matt in a lot of ways, and maybe redirected him in some positive ways, but really destroyed him as far as being fearful of letting anything like that ever happen again, which stays his hand quite a bit of ways. This may be a good thing again because it brings Matt into the no-killing zone. He knows what it's like to do so. It also means Matt's aware that he must control every situation to make sure everybody comes out of it alive. But from that emotional standpoint, Matt was completely abandoned by this man, and he never knew why until he begins to suss it out during this particular set of issues. The real reason is Man Without Fear didn't reach the stands until 1993. It was written after this, so Miller put the cart before the horse. And that's because he intended to never actually have the horse on board, he just wanted the cart. And when given the chance to expand on that whole teaching and why Stick broke it off, of course he's going to take that. That's just a nice little nuance, and it informs what we read retroactively. The next observation does come directly from Stick, who informs a member of the chase that he trained all of them, which is going to become important more in the Electra Assassin era than this. He also mentions, though, that Matt could be as good as any of them any day. It's the last part of what he says here that stood out to me, and I had to think on it for a while. He says he could be as good as any of you any day if his head wasn't such a snake pit. And this seems to confirm the theory that I had last week, which kind of builds off of the what's going on with Matt motif that's been going through the issues since we returned. The imagery of Matt's mind being a snake pit, all these snakes coiling on each other, where one begins, another ends, and it seems completely convoluted and confusing, that makes sense to me. That imagery sealed it for me. There is so much happening in Matt's mind that he can't focus on any one thing because one problem relates to another problem which coils around yet a third problem and they're all compounding. And when you get that messed up, when you cannot focus, your IQ drops. Now think about this idea that Matt's mental capacity is degrading because of all the confusion, all of his emotional turmoil that's going through his mind right now. Most of which came from Miller's own hand. Miller loves putting Daredevil through his paces. But when you take all of that, of course Matt's senses are going haywire. He can't differentiate between positive input and negative input. Because his mind is racing so many different directions, it's chaotic in there, I would imagine. So his filters begin to fall. And that makes perfect sense. When you take that a step further, where Matt's sole perception, which are his remaining four senses, and if you want to count the fifth sense, the radar sense, that counts too. When those perceptions begin to go chaotic, when they begin to lose control, it becomes impossible to work with any perception. That, in turn, just feeds into the turmoil of Matt's mind, making good seem bad. Up is down, left is right, and when you rely on those senses so much that it becomes a part of you, of your core personality, that begins to degrade everything about you. That's why Matt has gone through this domino-tumbling effect of bad upon bad upon bad. Because if your perception is warped when it enters into that cognitive function, it's going to come out in negative action as well. The best example I can give, the best analogy, is that if your depth perception is off, then the wall that seems far away may just be right in front of you, so you slam into it. And that's what's happening to Matt on an emotional level. He's slamming into things that are metaphorical walls that don't make sense to him, and he has no idea how to properly react any longer. Stick's line saying that just proves that Miller has been doing this for a while, at least since he dug up Electra. And that's further supported by Stick pointing out the third piece of information I want to talk about, Stick's second observation. The radioactivity that was in Matt's system after his accident, after he was blinded, is no longer there, which opens up the floodgates for discussion. 
I've questioned before if Matt was special before the radioactive ooze hit him in the side of the head. Was there some latent metahuman element to Matt that caused the reaction that allowed him to get enhanced senses instead of, you know, dying from cancer the way somebody would when introduced to radioactive elements? What if the answer is Matt shook off the radiation, it went through his system... And everything Matt does, his senses are all due to training. Stick even says you just got access to the same senses that everybody has. You just focused it and honed it. Maybe the radioactivity gave you a little bit of an edge in learning where they are. But it's you and my training that lets you keep it and hone it and focus it and become what you are and what those bring to the table in terms of being Daredevil. And I buy it. In fact, I appreciate it. The idea that Matt is a not a self-made man, that's the wrong term, but a man who has allowed training and practice and discipline to bring these to the table rather than random magic radiation. And I don't recall this idea being discussed any further down the road. I think it dies here within Miller's own run. Because further examinations do include the radioactive element. But let's say that this is absolutely gospel truth. For a brief period of time, Matt had radiation surging through his body. Those put into his realm of awareness the fact that he can hear better than anybody else, that he can smell, that he can count the number of salt granules on top of a pretzel. And then the radiation faded and Matt was quote unquote normal. But having become aware of these senses, having been introduced to them, he was able to grasp them. This negates the idea that the little isotope that we saw several issues ago was solely responsible for his senses going out of control. Sure, they didn't help it. But they weren't the core problem. Without spoon-feeding it to us, Miller is letting us know this is all psychological. Matt is in a very, very bad place. He's very, very damaged. And we need to knock him down a few pegs so he reaches a what alcoholics call a moment of clarity. The moment when you realize, oh, I have a problem. Because once you realize you have the problem, you can begin to fix it and approach it that way. One thing I like about the theory that the radiation came and went, and the rest is up to Matt, is that it does put some of the power in Matt's hands. It becomes an element of determination and focus that Matt is able to function at the level he does without his actual sight. Not just a byproduct of some chemicals, some radiation, it's Matt, and Matt is the core of that. That tracks for me in terms of who Matt Murdock is in terms of what he became. Because I've mentioned this before, but Matt didn't have much of an identity as a child. It was all formed by Jack Murdock. Jack pushed Matt into the education system. Jack inspired Matt to study and study hard. And Matt, being the doting son, did exactly that. And he ultimately refrained from what he wanted to do and what he desired to do in order to please Jack and make his father proud. Which, of course, led to Columbia Law School being a lawyer. And once Jack died, that was his sole reason for becoming Daredevil, was the idea of making things right. And that's what drove Matt. After Matt was blinded, he was able to learn Braille fast enough to catch up to his studies and get into Columbia Law School with a scholarship and graduate as valedictorian. He had to relearn all of that, and that shows some of his determination. Likewise, putting on that Daredevil costume to make the wrong things right in terms of Jack's death shows Matt is willing to do whatever it takes to make things right. So as long as Matt is driven, he's able to accomplish anything, such as honing his senses, training them, focusing them, filtering them up to the point where he is able to be as proficient, if not more, than a sighted person. Now the flip side of the coin is Stick is just messing with him, that the radiation did do it, that he is enhanced by that radiation, and Stick is just trying to convince Matt with reverse psychology that nothing is wrong. 
and Matt buys in and he comes out of the sensory deprivation tank based on that and his senses are back to normal. So either way, there's a certain determination to Matt. Either he's pushed himself to the point where he can use these senses or he's decided that stick is right and he's been able to reattach his filters psychologically and get back to quote unquote normal. There's validity to either way, to be honest with you, but the idea that Matt shuffled off the radiation and it's all been him this whole time is much like Swamp Thing finding out that he's not really a mutated Alec Holland, but a plant that thinks he's Alec Holland. It turns things on its ear in a big way, but this is never really fully followed up on. Not in any real tangible way. It's one of the few contributions that Frank Miller made to the character in the title that didn't stick around. Because the hand will be around for a long time, Stick will appear periodically, mostly in Electra stories, The Kingpin becomes a full-on Daredevil villain instead of being an inherited Spider-Man villain. But this idea that Matt shuffled off the radiation and it's been him the whole time never gets its full due. At least not yet. But with an issue that's so thin, it was actually funny that I didn't know if I was going to be able to fill a full episode, yet there's a lot of ideas, at least two ideas, that filled up quite a bit. This is one of those issues that makes it very, very good that I don't sit down and do copious notes like I used to because I would be very, very stressed and trying to come up with as many notes as I can without going overboard, you know what I mean? And this issue doesn't lend itself to that in any way, shape, or form, so I probably would have looked a lot like Doc Brown. Instead, I approached this issue and decided to do a Maverick and become inverted and give it the bird. But I was able to make it through the episode, so we are here at the final verdict for Daredevil number 188. As a whole, this issue simply serves as a holding powder, and I said it early in the episode. It's simply checking in on each and every subplot, and Daredevil's out of commission for pretty much the entire issue, only popping out at the end and still not really doing anything. Some of this is forgivable as Black Widow gets center stage in this one, and we get her absorbing what's going on in the book, which also reminds the reader. But we also see her being strong and independent and deciding she's going to take the bull by the horns and fight this thing by any means necessary. Now I've poked holes in the logic of Natasha seeking out Matt to try to help with this instead of relying on S.H.I.E.L.D. And perhaps there would have been a stronger case to be made for her inclusion in this storyline if it had been done a little bit more logically. Having said that, I'm still happy as hell to see Natasha here even though she's in that gray costume. The soccer mom costume. Like she should be serving Sunny Delight to a bunch of her kids' friends. Come on, we can't see Natasha serving pizza rolls to a bunch of kids, can we? But you'll rarely, if ever, hear me complain about Natasha showing up in the pages of Daredevil. And she's a character I definitely want to explore a little bit more down the road as we look at some of the miniseries that feature her. Having said that, this was a frustrating issue. As last issue was very slow and thin and repetitive, this issue was even slower and stretched out over so much time. By this point, Miller would know he was leaving the book with issue number 191, and he knew he had to bring his storyline to a conclusion, and maybe he was contracted for a certain number of issues, or they were waiting for a replacement to show up, or just milking the Frank Miller fame train that was happening. But I don't think his focus was completely in this issue. It was very much filler. Let's be honest, when you buy a Twinkie, you want the whole Twinkie. You don't want just the cream filling. And that's what this issue was. It was cream filling. Kyrgy was resurrected last issue, and yet he's killed this issue once again, which is going to lead somewhere really, really cool, but it feels a little anticlimactic. Like Miller had an original direction that he abandoned at some point that was going to involve a big climactic battle with Kyrgy, only to dismiss it and go a different direction. Now, in the long run, the different direction that is taken is much more compelling, I will admit that, but it resulted in two issues in a row where I just felt really, really disappointed. Still engaged to some extent, because there's still good stuff on the table here but ultimately disappointed in the single issues. 
especially in retrospect in the fact that Miller has done complete unto themselves issues that had a beginning, middle, and end, while also contributing to the overall narrative, and that were totally engaging and totally innovative. And yet, this issue has no innovation and nothing really new. It's a lot of shoulder taps saying, hey, remember this is going on? Let's also remember that's going on, and don't forget about these things as well. The only thing this issue serves to do is bring Black Widow into the equation and bring a fairly abrupt ending to Matt's sense problem, which kind of comes out of nowhere and doesn't really resolve the psychological issues that Miller himself has put on the board. It's not broken, but it's definitely bent to the point where you're starting to see the seams come apart on this issue, and luckily, things pick up next issue, which is where we're going to pick up next week. Next time, we get the sh** hitting the fan for real. If the last two issues were slow, next issue makes up for it as a all-out ninja battle occurs and one character doesn't walk away. That, my friends, is in one week. Until then, I am J. David Weeder reminding you once again that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only. Hear his name. Hell, devil, fight for one.